A Jewish rabbi was preparing for the Day of Atonement. He paraded around beating his breast saying, I am nothing, I am nothing. A religious official followed suit and did as his rabbi. The two marched through the synagogue demonstrating their humility. The janitor witnessed this ritual and was reminded of his own sinfulness. He too began to beat his breast and cry out in attrition, I am nothing. When the rabbi heard the janitor, he turned to the religious official and smugly said, now look who thinks he's nothing. Okay? Um, it was supposed to be funny, okay, Bill? I'm glad you're tracking with me, all right? Uh, as humorous, and I think it was a humorous story as this might be, it does reflect a danger when uh, pride distorts or hinders our view of others and our, our love of others. We have numerous examples that are seen throughout the Scriptures that feature this for us. And we're going to have an opportunity today to see one of the most unique as we study the book of Jonah. And I invite you to turn there if you haven't had the opportunity already. And um, on a personal note, I just wanted to share um, that the Lord is really doing a work in my heart just as it relates to our evangelism training. I am eager um, to uh, focus and allow uh, and see what God does just in, in my own heart as it relates to my need to be sensitive to those who do not know Christ and cultivate a, a greater love for the lost. I, I really want that, and I think that's the desire of, of everybody in the room. Well, there's a direct correlation between knowing God and loving God. The more we study who God is, the more we see how His love, His compassion, His mercy, His kindness is directed towards us as believers. And as Pastor David shared last week, and it was a wonderful illustration that he used to allow us to see the agape love uh, in, in Scripture, the, the love of God is like Niagara Falls. Anyone who has ever been to Niagara Falls knows just how powerful it is. You can be several hundred feet away, and as you're, you're, you're drawing close to it, you start to hear this. And, and as you get closer and closer, it just gets louder and louder, and you can just sense the power of this amazing, amazing landmark. Well, the divine floodgate of God's love is opened up to believers, and His love enables us to love Him and to love others in return. And this is, as Pastor David indicated last week, this is 1 John 4.19 language all the way. We love because He first loved us. And this love is emphasized both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. To help Israel remember, um, God gave them what is commonly known as the Shema, which means it's, it's actually that Hebrew word is translated here. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4-9. through 9, And I want to read it for us. And I want you to notice the details of the reminders that God brings to people to have that be on their hearts and to even have it be connected to their homes and even to their doorposts and to their gates. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I think it's fair to say that God certainly wanted Israel to remember the love, right? And certainly God wants the church to recall it. How is love emphasized in the New Testament? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He was asked by the Pharisees to share what the greatest commandment was, He basically brings the Shema to them um, with, with an extended version and says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, right? And add strength in Mark 12.30, as well as love our neighbor. The Lord confirms, confirms the connection for us that knowing God fuels our love for God as well as our love for others. And this morning's message does focus on the book of Jonah. And I'm under the personal conviction that Jonah's pitfalls are something that all of us need to be aware of. And as I alluded to earlier, he offers a clear example of how human pride can hinder our love and our view of others. Jonah was indeed, he was a rebel without applause. He's somebody that we don't want to look to as an example. He serves as something that we're not to do as we look at an overview of the entire book. Now, some of you are already very familiar with the story. I get that. There's a good chance that you heard it at some point in Sunday school, if you were in the church when you were younger. Some of you have background and insights into the story, so this should allow us to move quickly. But for those of you who may not be so familiar, I will take some time to fill in the gaps and to bring in the context that's going to help us see what God would have us see today. We're going to see two different demonstrations of character on display. We're going to see the incredible and consistent faithfulness seen in the consistent character of God. And then on the other hand, we're also going to see the troubling and arrogant pride found in the human heart of the prophet Jonah. Our two main characters are God and Jonah. And Jonah is infamous for his rebellion against God. Yet God is more renowned for accomplishing his purposes. And Jonah sought his own direction. And what God do, he steps in and Gave him a redirection. Jonah lacked mercy and compassion for Gentiles. Yet the Lord revealed that his mercy and compassion extends beyond the borders of the nation of Israel. The goal today is twofold. First, to have our hearts greatly encouraged by, by God's character. Okay, It's just on display um, through, throughout the book. And the second, to have our hearts worn by the example not to follow, which is, which is the title of today's message. God wants us to see how vulnerable our hearts are to becoming just like Jonah if we should take our eyes off Him. Have you ever found it difficult to love unbelieving family or friends? Have you ever intentionally sinned when you knew that God's Word commanded you otherwise? Have you ever been guilty of having a self-righteous attitude? All of these struggles will surface in the message today. And so let's uh, get started on our book of Jonah. And there's three pitfalls 
from this prideful prophet that we'll see that can hinder our love of the lost. And these are found in your bulletin for you already. Pitfall number one is this, his rebellion against God. Three pitfalls, four chapters, and we're going to get started. And though these pitfalls have individual elements, okay, we'll, we'll see that their prideful bent allows them to overlap a great deal throughout the book. Jonah's first pitfall is his rebellion against God. Let's start reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God summons Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he immediately rebels. He turns and he goes the exact opposite direction. From the word go, he takes off. And it says two times in verse 3 that he was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And since we live on the coast, I did a little geographical research that might help us understand what this looked like. It would be like God calling Jonah to leave from Los Angeles and preach a message of repentance to Seattle. Okay, about 900 miles away, roughly, was, was uh, the, the distance that was being required. But instead, Jonah jumps on a cruise ship and heads to Cabo San Lucas down in Mexico, okay? He was going the exact opposite direction. And this is a strong response from Jonah. And some background here is going to help us. And Nineveh at this time was a very great city, is what the word describes. It was significant in terms of its size. It was the capital city of Assyria with a total population that was estimated between 600,000 to a million people, including the people who lived outside the city walls. And it's thought by some commentators that this could very well be the largest city in the world at the time. Nineveh stood on the eastern banks of the Tigris River, and it had this massive wall that went all the way around it. You've got to hear these dimensions. A hundred feet high, 50 feet thick was the wall. And the main wall in the front consisted of 15 gates, and it was seven and a half miles long. Wow. It was an imposing city. It was huge. It was great in population. It was great in geographical size. But most significantly, Nineveh was great in wickedness and heinous brutality. It was a gory and blood-filled city. Historians claim that the Ninevites would dismember their conquered enemies and then put them on display for the people to see. And it was to serve as a warning to, to all their enemies. Their ruthless behavior was an abomination to Israel. And we can be assured that it was to Jonah as well. And to gain a sense of this, and I don't know how effective um, this will be, um, we actually put up, you see these X's over here on the walls, and there's a, a little one over there. And 
I think we ran out of tape, but anyway, I, I, the, the, the point was this. If you, if you could imagine coming in this morning and seeing um, people who were, were killed as enemies hanging before you, that would have a pretty, pretty strong impact on you, wouldn't it? That person, I think, was dismembered. He says there's only a little bit. It's just a little X over there, okay? But that was, it served as a, as a great wake-up call. And they were wicked. And the Ninevites were also idolaters who worshipped Ashur and Ishtar, the chief male and female deities, as did almost all the Assyrians, which was just another unpleasant thought to a prophet of Israel. And so this was by no means a city that Jonah wanted to see receive God's mercy. Jonah, as we'll find out later in the book, would rather have God judge them by having them overthrown and die in their sins. And for the record, Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet who is sent to preach a message of repentance to non-Israelites. This is truly the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And part of the reason that Jonah was sent to Nineveh and what God was doing was to shame Israel. Because the Ninevites were going to receive the message, and we'll see this, that Jonah would ultimately bring from a complete stranger preaching repentance. When Israel wouldn't receive multiple messages that were calling them to repentance from her very own prophets. Well, Jonah's obviously in the wrong here and his reluctant heart attitude is something that we're going to look at under our next point, but we must see something very important. Jonah's rebellion is toward God. And it's not the Ninevites that are summoning Jonah to come to them, but it's God Himself. And Jonah's rebellion is directed toward God. And even the sailors on board the ship with Jonah are able to recognize this. Let's pick back up in verse 4. It says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors or mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to the, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. It's been speculated that Jonah was, he, he ran so hard from God, he sprinted so hard from the, 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 the command to go to Nineveh that um, this is what enabled him to sleep so well and to, to be lulled to sleep down in the ship. And so verse 6 says this, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? This is a question of disbelief. And the captain can't believe that someone is sleeping in the conditions that they're facing. And he says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? I mean, I can only imagine the, the haste, right? They're in the middle of this God storm and they're, they're like, they're desperate and they're, they're frantic. And Jonah responds to them and he says, I'm a Hebrew. 
And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10 says, The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So here the sailors actually begin to do some instructing. They acknowledge the foolishness of Jonah's rebellion against God. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but there's nothing more humbling than to have someone from the world let you know that your actions seem to be contradictory to what God would have you do. And this certainly should have gotten Jonah's attention. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous or stormy. He said, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And some theologians have speculated that Jonah initially didn't want to go to Nineveh because they were so brutal to their enemies and that if he was going to preach a message of repentance, that it was ultimately going to cost him his life. But Jonah had no fear about dying. He's saying, you can throw me overboard. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. Even the sailors recognize that God is in this. And I love what the notes, if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, it says this under the notes for verses 13 and 14. Heathen sailors had more concern for one man than Jonah had for 10,000. Tens of thousands, excuse me, in Nineveh. And so after calling out to the Lord, verse 15 says, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. And the mere, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, made vows. And chapter 1 finishes with the Lord appointing a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah got to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And it appears that Jonah's rebellion on the boat um, reflects a heart that's even so hardened that he doesn't really even have a concern for the sailors who are going to perish on his account. Yet the mercy of the Lord shows up in great measure. The story doesn't share whether these men were converted to Jewish faith, but one commentator had this to say, certainly there was a new respect for the God of Israel, a new understanding of His power, but there is no suggestion that these Phoenician sailors renounced their ancestral, ancestral religion or made any efforts to discover what apart from the power distinguished Yahweh from Baal or Asherah. In other words, they had been brought to the position envisioned by Paul in Romans 1, 19 and 20, right? They saw the, the power of God and His attributes. And that was not inconsiderable, but there is no more evidence that the, their spiritual apprehension went further. But you know what? My heart remains hopeful. My heart remains um, hopeful that Jonah did share um, with them uh, about Yahweh. And, and I, I liken this experience to um, though we're, when we, those of us who have gone on missions trips, we're, we're, we're going willingly, right? But sometimes God's at work all the way through. And he uses the testimony and people get curious even about the reality of why, you're, why are you going, right? It opens up great opportunities for the gospel. Well, 
Jonah's rebellion against God was so strong that the God that God had the sailors of the ship cast Jonah overboard and then appointed a great fish to swallow him. And his rebellion basically paves the way for what I believe is one of the most intense and greatest forms of chastisement on a human being in all of Scripture. And I think that this is probably the most infamous part of Jonah, right? We, we, we do hear stories about this stemming all the way back to children's ministries and Sunday school. And I think to some degree, those stories minimize the severity of the discipline that God afflicted on Jonah. And I want to read an account for you. The following was taken from a survey of Old Testament introduction by Gleason Archer on page 296. And this is what it says. Several cases have been reported in more recent times of men who have survived the ordeal of being swallowed by a whale. One of the most striking instances comes from Francis Fox in the book 63 Years of Engineering, who reports that this incident was carefully investigated by two scientists. In February 1819, the whaling ship Star of the East was in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands, and the lookout spotted a large sperm whale three miles away. Two boats were lowered, and in a short time, one of the harpooners was enabled to spear the creature. The second boat also attacked the whale, but was then upset by a lash of its tail so that its crew fell into the sea. One of them was drowned, but the other, James Bartley, simply disappeared without a trace. After the whale was killed, the crew set to work with axes and spades, removing the blubber. They worked all day and part of the night. The next day, they attached some tackle to the stomach, which was hoisted on deck. The sailors were startled by something in it, which gave spasmodic signs of life. And inside was found the missing sailor doubled up and unconscious. And he was laid on the deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which soon revived him. At the end of the third week, he had entirely recovered from the shock and resumed his duties. His face, neck, and hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment. Barley affirms that he would have probably have lived inside this house of flesh until he starved. He lost his senses through fright, not through a lack of air. And my reason for sharing this story with you, this account is twofold. First, there are skeptical theologians who try to allegorize the story of Jonah. And they deny that it's a literal historical account. And that it would be impossible for something like this to happen. And poor hermeneutics extend an invitation to allegorizing the text. And many of the arguments are refuted elsewhere in the Scriptures or in extra-biblical literature. Nineveh is a proven city historically. And the introduction declares that Jonah was a real historic person born to Amittai as 2 Kings 14.25 indicates. And then Christ even references the realness of the account in Matthew 12.41 where the Lord says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. All right? So it's great when you have the Lord Jesus Christ on your side, isn't it? It's, uh, it's wonderful. My second reason for sharing this story is to highlight just how real the discipline of the Lord can be when we rebel as believers. He's not short on finding fish to swallow us. He truly isn't. And the Lord was teaching Jonah to have a heart of mercy. 
And Jonah lost sight of the Ninevites' great need for God when he chose to focus more on the sinners and their sins more than God who was able to forgive them. And the truth be told, we're living in a time and in a place where the same thing can happen to us if we take our eyes off of God. A God who's just as eager to forgive today as He was during that time. Who has also commanded us to take the message of repentance Right? And a new dispensation with a complete message, a message of repentance to those who are perishing. And the best way for us to keep the, the, the flame of our evangelism burning brightly is to know God and His incredible heart to offer mercy and forgiveness to all who turn to Him, to receive it by faith and repentance. And our study of God and knowing Him provides fuel for this. And we get the privilege of being used as messengers of the Gospel, as conduits of His grace, stewarding the ministry of reconciliation that He has entrusted to us. And so this is a principle that I'm pulling away from here, right? This is two different... We're talking about Israel in this story, and the the, the church today, we're talking about the Gospel. But there's there's a, a witness that took place through the nation of Israel that called people to repent and to trust in Yahweh, right? And there's a message that we see in complete form today in this dispensation, living in the church age, that calls us to take a message of a full gospel. And if there's an application that I could say that we could all take away from this sermon, I would say this. This evangelism training that we're doing on Sunday morning is of of great significance. It's vitally important. And maybe you haven't had the opportunity to come to the equipping hour the last two Sundays, but the messages are recorded. You can listen to them online. And, and I, I really believe it's so important for us to come. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready to evangelize. We need to focus on who God is and the incredible mercy that comes through the message of the Gospel. It's certainly one way that this can impact our hearts because the truth be told, the prideful prophet had his love hindered. Had his view of others hindered. Right? And God was trying to teach him. Well, the first pitfall was his rebellion against God. Pitfall number two is this, his reluctant heart. In chapter 1, Jonah's rebellion led him to be tossed into the sea and swallowed by the great fish. And now in chapter 2, we hear directly from Jonah as he cries out from the belly of the fish. And he's humbled greatly. It appears that his heart's repentant. But you know what? Commentators are split on this issue of Jonah's repentance. Some believe that it's repentant. While many do not. And to me, it certainly seems reluctant. Not repentant. And there's a danger of basing a conclusion on the, entire, uh, the entirety of chapter 2 alone. And that's why you'll notice that our second point needs to have us take into consideration the whole book, the whole reality of, of what we see. One thing I do know is this. Jonah is miserable in the belly of this fish. And imagine for a moment what this would have been like. Jonah was thrown into the turbulent sea and deep sea water is notorious for being frigidly cold. 
Any ounce of light he saw completely disappeared when he was swallowed into the belly of the fish. Blackout. Gone. Right? Raise your hand if you've ever had the wonderful joy of going fishing. Any, anybody out there fi- fishing, right? Okay. Now, raise your hand again if you've had the, the great privilege of gutting a fish. Yeah, a couple of you people. Yeah, and, and, and I see faces too. Anyone who's ever gutted the fish, the belly out of a fish, is nasty. And there's a pungent odor that truly can make people sick. Make them sick right down to their stomach. And Jonah, we can be certain, was experiencing a wet and cold feeling like he had never experienced before. And he was in complete darkness. And he was all alone. And some scholars believe that even the digestive enzymes started to, to process him, started to, to work on him, that he was frigidly cold, but there, it was also producing a burning sensation on his skin. And all this, guess what, lasted for three days. Three days. Even the documented account that we read early, the guy only spent one night in the whale. And what happened? He was unconscious with fright. This was serious. And chapter 2 ends with Jonah getting spit out by the fish on dry land. And my reason for highlighting all this is to help us see that God wanted Jonah's heart to change. And I want to make sure that we all see that the Lord would teach us that one, that if, if we, when, when we rebel, we, we are inviting the chastisement. We are inviting the discipline of the Lord into our lives. Well, on the surface, it may appear after chapter 2 that Jonah's heart is sincere, but we need to keep reading. Let's get back to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And I alluded to this before, but the word great here is a reference to its size. And this is the same language that we saw in chapter 1, verse 2. And call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh and according to the, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. Allow me to expand on something here. This wasn't um, Jonah having to travel three days from where he was to take the message that God was going to have him take. It means that the city was so large, and the ESV helps us here because it's talking about the breadth of the city. It was a three-day journey. And the the circumference of the city was estimated to be 60 miles or more. A man named Diodorus Siculus in the first century B.C., documented the circumference of the city as approximately 60 miles. And all God's people said, thank you, Diodorus. Right? Hey, he provided, century, uh, you know, centuries later, he recorded that for us so that we could know how big Nineveh was. And Jonah, in verse 4, began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I'm resisting the temptation because I don't want to do eisegesis and read into the Scripture, but I do think that 
um, there's a reflection of Jonah's heart just even on the shortness of his travel to even go into the city. In fact, it doesn't even say, in what's recorded, he, it doesn't even say that he says a whole lot. We'll get to that in just a bit. I believe that his reluctant heart is reflected um, even in verse 4 onward. One commentator shared this, Jonah was not necessarily proclaiming God's message as he went into the city, but sometime on the first day, Jonah proclaimed the message. And there may well have been something about Jonah, his bearing, his dress, or something else as he strode toward the center of the city, looking neither to the right nor to the left, that drew many after him when he finally stood and shouted, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The news spread like wildfire. Okay? And the credibility of Jonah's message was amplified because Assyria had these enemies to the north of them, and so this um, certainly caught their attention. We're not told whether Jonah repeated his message. He probably did. Or whether he was interrogated by those who heard him. And if so, we don't have any idea what they said. But the Word of the Lord worked the miracle, not Jonah or his commentary, right? The Word of the Lord had the power. And it's, it's amazing. And the same commentator also provided another additional insight that I thought was pretty fascinating. And I'm eager to share with you the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. is called the Septuagint, Okay. And the Septuagint records that Jonah said three days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Not 40. Three days. And this is what the commentator shared. He said, There is no doubt that this suits the setting far better and helps explain the urgency of Nineveh's repentance. In addition, it does not ask us to see Jonah camping outside the city for over a month while he waited to see the outcome. Yet in variations of this type, which can hardly be merely the result of scribal corruptions, one has to be suspicious of the highly attractive reading. For all that, the Septuagint reading should have at least found a place in the margin. Right? He's like, man, why, what, what? and I thought that's a good word. And um, I wanted to let you know that I was going to email one of the smartest men that I knew, a Hebrew scholar who teaches at the Master Seminary. His name is Dr. Bill Barrick, and he is just incredibly smart, and I'm interested, right? I, I, need, I want to know this answer. And so, you'll just have to come to equipping hour if you want to find out the answer. No, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about that in the, in the future. Well, the account doesn't share any more details as to what Jonah shared beyond the single statement calling them to repent, but the king's proclamation to have them call out to God mightily leads us to believe that it was Jonah's God that they were encouraged to call out to. And then verse 10 um, confirms this for this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said that He would do to them. And He did not do it. It'd be foolish to think that God relented if they called out to another God. And then again, we can go back to Christ and in Matthew 12, right? Even saying that they were justified and that they stand, that they stand reconciled to God. But what's taken place here is absolutely unbelievable. It is single-handedly 
In, in the entire Bible, the, the greatest account of simultaneous repentance in the history of mankind. And as Christians, we make a big deal about the start of the church at Pentecost where over 3,000 got saved, right? But imagine this a hundred times over. That's what just took place right here. And we're told in verse 5 that everyone repented from the greatest to the least. And our hearts can and should be greatly encouraged by God's mercy and compassion upon the Gentiles. Because this was just a preview of what would take place when His grace was extended to us as Gentiles through Christ. And our prideful prophet allows us to see that there's no place for a reluctant heart for the servant of the Lord. There's no place for it. And like Jonah, if we do not see God's heartbeat for the lost, then we're going to be reluctant to evangelize ourselves. It's going to hinder us. We're not going to go to that neighbor. You know, that neighbor I'm talking about. The, the one that may have their music cranked up till, you know, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. on Friday and Saturday nights. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of respect for you or um, any of the other neighbors, right? They're, they're, they, they serve the unholy trinity of themselves. God couldn't possibly save them, right? No. You know, I, my heart's been so greatly challenged just even watching this recent Olympics. You know, it's, it's hard. Sometimes you're just, um, you know, to, 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 we see, I see the same advertisements that you do, right? When, when all of a sudden, you know, there's a, a car advertisement that's promoting the, the destruction of our families, right? That, that same-sex marriage is just, it's, 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 it's the new normal, right? It's the, the new normal. God wants us to focus on the Gospel. God wants us to focus on the Gospel. And I actually had um, a friend who was, who was basically um, talking about how we could boycott. We all need to get together and, 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 and to boycott um, these companies that are pushing this message. Okay? And I don't want to be misunderstood here. I do think that there's... A, we, we don't want to support things that are going to go ahead and, and, and drive messages that are going to contradict and promote the accept, acceptance of destructive sin. But if we truly want to make a difference, then we need to focus on that which is going to make a difference. And it's the message of the Gospel. They need faithful messengers. They need us. They need us to come and let them know that there's a holy God who is their Creator, their authority, and their Judge. And that their sin has them condemned. And it's enough to keep them separated from God forever. And the only way that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God as sinners is through the perfect righteousness of the Father's Son who paid the debt for our sins with His life, death, and resurrection. Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God 
the Father for everyone who will put their faith completely in Christ as Savior and Lord. And you know what I did right there? Everybody knows this in the evangelism class. We had to write out the gospel. I wanted to, I wanted to include the one that I, that I wrote out right there. Boycotting something communicates something, right? I, I, I get that, and I understand. I understand why we would do that, but I, I also want us to see the, the importance of being faithful messengers of the gospel and not get distracted with a boycotting strategy. Okay. While our time's disappearing, we're studying three pitfalls of a prideful prophet that can hinder our love for the lost. Pitfall number one, rebellion against God. Pitfall number two, a reluctant heart. Pitfall number three, a recalcitrant response. Jonah chapter four, it starts out this and it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? And just struck at God's patience with Jonah. Struck at it. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1.20 And Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Unbelievable. Just to see God's sovereignty in this hand in this whole account. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do, again, he's referring to his anger. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And this is a reference to, this is how um, researchers base their numbers on the size of the city. This is a reference to children, 120,000 kids. Okay? Here we see Jonah's recalcitrant response. And I know what you're thinking. I just picked recalcitrant because it was an R word and it, it fit right in there. But uh, truth be told, recalcitrant is a perfect word to describe his response. If something's recalcitrant, it means that it's stubbornly refusing to obey. It's unteachable. He's got a recalcitrant response. 
How incredibly sad. Jonah's prideful pitfalls cause him to strike out three different times. First, his rebellion against God. Second, with his reluctant heart. And finally, here at the end, with his recalcitrant, unteachable, proud, arrogant, self-willed, merciless, and foolish response. And all the time, what's God doing? All the time, God is saying, look at me. Look at me, Jonah. You, you, you know, and he had enough. We don't even know to what degree all the Scriptures that Jonah had, but we know that he had enough, right? He knew that God was merciful, slow to anger, patient, willing to forgive. And there's one thing that keeps me from throwing Jonah under the bus. And that's the recognition that my own heart, my, my own heart, John, John Crick, my full name's Jonathan. I could actually be, it could be Jonathan. <laughs> if I'm not careful, if, 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 I, if I take my eyes off the merciful one, if I take um, my eyes off the one who has a burden for the, for the loss, the one who wants to bring mercy, the one who wants to bring grace, the one who wants to forgive. And all of a sudden, I start focusing more on the agenda, the sinner, and their sin. I have the same capacity to act just like he did. And one commentator concluded this from his study of Jonah. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonah's to learn and grow from him and to come around to his way of loving. And it's so true. It is so true. Well, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are our ultimate example of mercy. And even the word that reflects your mercy and steadfast love and kindness and grace is a single word in the Hebrew, but we need multiple words to describe it because it's who you are. And Lord, you have provided examples in Scripture that encourage us. And we're so thankful for the faithful men that you provide. And yet also, Father, you allow us to learn from those who were poor examples. And you allow us to learn truly at their expense. And I pray, Father, that as a, a church, truly as a church family, that is celebrating 15 years, 15 years of your steadfast love, of your faithfulness, that you would, Heavenly Father, allow us to continue to cultivate a heart of love, compassion, and mercy, and forgiveness towards others. And to do that, we need to know you. 
that will allow us to love you. And when we love you, we'll obey you just as the Lord instructed us. So Father, thank you for these three pitfalls that we were able to see so clearly from the study of Jonah. And we ask now, Father, that as we turn our hearts to celebrate communion, that you would allow us just to take a moment to consider our lives before you. Help us to think of the ways that maybe we've rebelled. Help us to think of the ways that we have falsely viewed others or been unloving. You want us to have hearts that are made right before you, before we celebrate. I pray, Father, that you would bless the fellowship at this table, that we would be able to see the importance of unity, that you would allow us to exalt you because of all that you're doing. And Lord, we commit this time to you. We're eager. We look forward to the meal that we can celebrate afterward as well. But help us now to focus on you as we sing these songs, as we celebrate the bread and the cup together. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.